Hello. Having paused some of our activity during the period of national mourning, it was back to business last week. I'm delighted to see the Confed doing more and more work to support our leaders of the most pressing problems they face. For example, we've just held a joint event on urgent and emergency care with NHS providers. Last week, I spoke to a group of acute providers about their varied experience of system working. And on Friday, I was out helping the members of a new ICS become more of a team and develop some common priorities. One other aspect of our work is advocacy, and that means now influencing the new trust administration and, of course, the new Secretary of State. One priority is bringing more help to NHS leaders as we prepare for what's already an incredibly challenging autumn and could be an even more challenging winter. We've been highlighting the yawning capacity gap, which is leaving the NHS having to choose between cutting back essential care or accepting that waiting times will continue to lengthen. While the £500 million adult social care discharge fund announced the mini-budget was welcome, we now know this is unlikely to be new money. We were disappointed that our call for care workers to get a decent minimum hourly wage hasn't been acted on. Before the mini-budget, we had the new Health and Social Care Secretary Theresa Coffey's plan for patients. A lot of that focused on primary care. Now, we know that general practice has worked incredibly hard to improve access to appointments. They're now above the levels seen before the pandemic. Primary care has moved to new ways of working, rapidly deploying new technology, recruiting thousands of additional staff, at the same time, of course, as playing a vital role in delivering over 100 million COVID jabs. And of course, the primary care team is still facing ever-rising demand from patients, many of whom I hear from primary care have got more complex needs. And we're doing that while contending with a shortage of over 4,000 full-time equivalent GPs. On the positive side, our members do welcome the commitment to significant changes in pension arrangements. It's an issue the NHS Confederation has written to the Chancellor about before. The changes made will help allay the current pensions crisis of renting many senior medical staff from taking on additional shift work. Also, as I mentioned in my letter to the Times last week, we've already raised to the new Prime Minister the impact of a decade of underinvestment in NHS estate and infrastructure, leaving buildings crumbling and poor IT services and equipment. Our argument is that the maintenance backlog must be addressed. And when we hear that the government is giving accelerated capital funding for new building and new roads, we, we think some of that needs also to be made available to the NHS. And although the energy price cap, both for homes and the public sector, is welcome, the wider cost of living crisis is still with us. The implications for people's health are significant. Most obviously, the impact on mental well-being. And that's something I'm discussing with the guest on this episode of Health on the Line, Joe Rafferty, CEO of Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. So, over to Joe Rafferty. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the change makers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. Just a little bit more about, about Joe before we start our conversation. 
Uh, Joe was appointed CEO in September 2012. During his tenure, there's been a significant expansion in the organization, almost trebling uh, in size, as well as huge changes, huge modernization of the state, of the estate, the digital infrastructure. And, and now the trust is one of the largest specialized integrated care providers in the NHS. And just a bit more about Joe. Joe's been named as one of the top 50 NHS CEOs by the Health Service Journal over the last five years and has appeared in HSJ's most influential people in healthcare in the UK. So that's uh, that's a bit of a picture of, of you, Joe. So how are you? I'm very well, Matthew. Thanks very much. Well, thanks so much for joining. You know, before I get into um, the issues that we're going to talk about today, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you've been at Mersey Care since 2012. My last job at the RSA, I was there for, for 15 years, but it's quite unusual now for people to stay in the same organization for a, a long time. And, and and I don't think we talk about it enough as a virtue, really, because there are particular strengths, it seems to me, about sticking with a job and, and developing an organization. So t- talk to me about why you've stayed and what you think are the, the, the reasons why it's worth being in a job for, for as long as you have. It's a it's a good question, Matthew. I mean, last time I looked, the the half life of an NHS chief executive was a bizarrely small number of months, uh, and I think if you think about it that way, it's it's sort of obvious why then staying a bit longer is a good thing. In a short time period, uh, in complex organisations, often with you know historically uh, untractable problems. Um, you know, 18 months, two years, you barely get your feet onto the table, you barely get to know the people, all of those sorts of things. So, you know, I'm coming up on a decade in this job. Um, it doesn't feel like a decade, but it's taken a long time, I think, to um, to build trust across the system, to uh, definitely build trust with uh, a big group of staff. I mean, our, we currently have about 12,000 staff. We've been through a, a series of acquisitions that have made us bigger. I think that helps make us better in the long term. But I think being able to get an organization to a stable place, to describe a strategy for development, as we've done, uh, and then to begin to deliver that strategy, I think helps create a leader's credibility in the system. And I think if you're a, a leader for a short period of time in an organization, it's, it's harder to marshal the resources. It's harder to work out where you know the bear traps are. As a leader, you need to know when, when you pull the lever, some things happen. And it takes a surprisingly long time, in my experience, to you know know that when, as a chief executive or a board leader, you pull the lever, something actually happens at the other end. And I, th- I think some some leaders who find themselves in difficult, precarious places after a couple of years have just fallen unlucky uh, in that those levers have been connected to absolutely critical sets of actions. So I hope that makes some sense. Yeah, it does. And, and, and Joe, I, I know because I've read your blogs and know of you that you're a very thoughtful person. I'm just going to push this a bit further, just reflecting on my own experience when I was at the RSA. I, I can see all those positive elements. Uh, let, let me share with you what, what started to feel to me like traps that I had to avoid. So one was that when you've been an organization so long, you're very heavily invested in it. And you inevitably end up having to change things which you yourself with the instigator of. So there's a danger that you become kind of attached to the things that you've done. Whereas, of course, when you're new, you can be you can pull anything up by the roots because it's not really your responsibility. And and in a more prosaically related to that, I guess, was 
I guess the times when I felt towards the end of my time at the RSA, a, a kind of sense of ennui was when the same problem came back again. You know, there's only so many times you can look at a kind of a, a potential deficit in the budget or something going wrong or having to re-recruit your kind of second in command or whatever it might be. You think, oh, goodness, I've done this twice or three times. Or How do you avoid those traps? Well, they're, they're all really good points, Matthew. And the, the things I do, uh, I, I do spend some time thinking about. I, I think on the first one, which is at what point is there an inverse relationship with longevity? Just because some level of of boredom, you know, sets in, you believe your own rhetoric. <laughs> you know, all the things that we all know that are, are are sort of bear traps in this area. I've will always say to anybody, any chief executive is only as good as the team they recruit. And, you know, I've worked very hard on recruiting a great team into Mercy Care. And the sort of notion that even if I put my arms around the pot plant that I think is my own, very, very good arguments will be made from my team as to why we ought to pull it up. And that's the thing about, you know, recognizing that in reality, this is a team sport. It's not an individual pursuit. If you do that well and you build the team well, you, you sort of build in some protection to the sort of confirmation bias that that of course can can develop over time. So you think that everything the organization has done must be good. We have a very lively approach in this organization. Uh, we have an un, a very good annual strategy refresh. We involve uh, lots of our system partners in that refresh and indeed include service users and carers in it. So to be honest, Matthew, I think if you've got multiple channels, you, you can always sort of pick up the signal to noise. That's really important, I think, to keep a sense of continuous improvement in an organization and genuinely have it that way rather than settle into something that, that feels like it's grown a little bit stale in that sense. Um, the second point about, you know, how do you face the same problem over and over again is um, I, I do feel like the guy in the film where, you know, he lives the same day over. Groundhog Day, yeah. Groundhog Day, that's the one, yeah. Uh, because, yeah, there are perennial recurring problems. I mean, I think the one that gives me the greatest frustration is we're putting mental health on the agenda, but we're not really. That is a sort of frustration in a sense. Although, you know, I have to say in the 10 years I've been doing this job, it has moved from, uh, I think, mental health been seen as a, a potential backwater place to, um, you know, been taken much more seriously uh, locally and nationally and you know, people like Claire Murdoch have done a stunning job of putting putting mental health onto the agenda. So it feels less of uh, a sort of frustrating burden to keep getting knocked back. But, you know, again, the, I'll often say to colleagues, what, one of the advantages, in a sense, of not being on the, uh, on the, you know, one of the three things that's always on the radar is uh, I doubt very much if as an organization we, we'd have undertaken and completed the level of change that we have. If, you know, literally every half hour I was doing a return to the centre to account for the last 200 quid in the, the budget type of thing. So, so you know, I've often um, sort of thought that that's, again, one of the reasons why staying in the job has been quite attractive. Because, you know, mental health services are a place where you can really do change. I mean, I, I find it interesting, the outbreak of conversations, certainly in the last couple of years as, as integrated care systems have developed about the whole, the whole notion of integration. Uh, yeah, quietly, mental health trusts have been getting on with integrating things for, you know, the past 20 years. Just one last kind of question this, on, on this topic. If 
you're the person you were who was appointed to this job 10 years ago was to have been fast forwarded to where you are now what do you think would surprise them about what's happened in that 10 years what has happened which you really didn't predict or expect and and are there things that you said to yourself you wanted to achieve 10 years ago and you can say yeah it, it might have been taken longer than i thought it might have been harder than i thought but yeah no we i knew we had to get there and we have got there i'd be thinking about what lessons could i learn from the past 20 years um that i think would help me accelerate uh, the change I'd want to make in the organization uh, at a much greater pace. And probably the thing I'd, I'd pick would, would, would be one of the issues, I think, in mental health is that we're, we're, we're data-laden, but, but we make little of, the, of that and turning it into intelligence. Um, so I'd probably want to accelerate that far faster than I have, although I think we've done our pretty good job on it in the organization but if i was to wind the clock back or forward i'd put much more energy into becoming intelligence led because i think we can change faster and better and further while we safely reduce costs actually i'd always contend that but we need to find ways to change gears more quickly and i suppose my reflection on the last 10 years and the 10 years before that has been the extent to which we still are in a massive discussion about you know uh, technical and productive efficiencies as the root out of the problems we currently have uh, whereas for me the answer feels like we need to allocate the money very very differently and you know commissioning was a big experiment in the in the allocative allocative efficiency space and sometimes it worked well but on in general it it didn't work so well you know so so i'd i'd love us to be able to grab and tackle that issue uh, as learning from the past 10 years and and bring it to life in in the ics and icbs well that takes us neatly to this issue of population health management which was one of the things I really wanted to go into depth with you on. What do you understand by the term population health management? Well, it's a it's a great question, and I I, I think it's a really important one because a bit like um, integration or uh, and you know charisma and all of these terms that we bang around, um, you talk to somebody and you get a you you get a very different view uh, from from different people, and I think we could do with. Uh, a little bit more debate in all of this. I mean, f for me, um, you know, population health um, is is at least one of the components of public health, but it's not public health. You know, there are other things in public health, screening programs, health safety issues and all of these sorts of things. So for me, the population health piece is about getting different insights creating new connections in terms of the physical and mental health outcomes in the population, using uh, that knowledge differently to uh, begin to think about uh, data-driven planning and delivery of more proactive, predictive types of care in order to, to sort of maximize the tax pounds uh, that we spend. The key point is the management. We've got great ways to segment, great ways to stratify, all of those sorts of things. My frustration, I think, at the minute is we keep continuing to describe in more and more detail the potential health inequality failures 
that we have in the population. And we've actually got to focus then on the tools to turn that knowledge instead of uh, using population health as a means to continue to describe health inequalities to use population health management as a driving device, a forcing function to program health equality. And those are quite different things. That data, what, what is it telling us about uh, the populations that use our services? What are, the, what are the kind of big insights that drop out of that better data? Well, I, th- I think it's it's not just the data. So, so you know, it's the data to analytics jump. I think that's really important. And um, you know, by analytics, I'm starting to sort of edge into the area of data science rather than just you know a very interesting spreadsheet. But with the right types of analytics and the right types of tools. Um, so, for example, NHS England for for quite some time now has been advocating a bridges to health model, um, a population segmentation approach, where rather than thinking about the commonologies that we we tend to focus on in terms of pathways, that uh, approach encourages us to think about the group with long-term conditions, the group with complex lives, the group that experiences frailty. And if you begin to look at the data through those sorts of lenses, then very quickly you begin to realize that there's a potential for some really different sorts of solutions. So uh, to bring it to life, we've we've done a lot of work in Cheshire and Merseyside and particularly starting that in the Liverpool context where we've looked at complex lives. And so, so what do we mean by complex lives? Let's take a load of data and turn it into a different uh, analytical perspective. We, we, we've we looked at people who have one major physical health condition plus one major mental health condition, and then they take one of a box, a group of about seven boxes, you know, um, unemployed, uh, addictions issues, domestic violence, uh, no stable uh, place to live, those sorts of things. So confounding social issues. If you look at a group in Liverpool, uh, based on those criteria, we've got about um, 3,000 families that fit that criteria. About 40% of the people in those families are children. Those families are are the people who uh, you will routinely find presenting frequently to A&E services, acute services, to mental health services, in and out of general practice frequently known to uh, the police, frequently known to social services. When you think about how do we begin to reduce demand on NHS services, primary care mental health acute services, and you look at the population in the context of complex lives, you can see immediately that if you don't deal with that problem, you're never going to take away the current demand that we have for NHS services. Second thing then is that group of of people who are really at the most complex end of of need um, consume a huge amount of public sector resource. Um, And that's not a judgment on whether that's right or wrong. But um, but what seems really clear to me is lots of use of service, lots of use of resource. And then when you look at 
how that system comes to be. There are lots of public sector organisations falling over each other, duplicating things, you know, uh, many, many uh, different agencies calling each day at one family's home and so on. So so it, I don't think it's a massive stretch of the imagination to say you could improve significantly the lives of this cohort of people, reduce the interactions they have with lots of public services, many of which don't have much value, and save some money in the process. One of the criticisms of this kind of approach uh, is that the cohort is not really that different from people just outside the cohort, that in a sense, we draw this arbitrary line uh, and it's as if we can say, well, look, this group is, is, is really special. But actually, when you look at the data, I mean, I know you're not just talking about poverty by any means, but but for example, you know, when I remember when I worked for, for New Labour, we, we had this idea about multi-generational people in poverty. It turned out that an awful lot more people than you might imagine cycled in and out of poverty. They were actually, as a word that we use much more now, precarious their lives rather than, than stuck. How satisfied are you that this cohort really is a thing and, and that you're not, in a sense, drawing a rather arbitrary line when you talk about the kind of criteria for it? And I think when you begin to take the analysis and spot it down onto a map, at ward level, at neighborhood level, and so on. Um, and then you look at the things we don't sort of uh, incorporate into the cohort, but which we know are probably really, really critical. Stuff like, you know, how often do people appear in the criminal justice system and all of those sorts of things? Well, well, sort of unsurprisingly, the red dots co-locate in pretty much the same places. So, so I think to some extent, Matthew, I get your point. Uh, People drop in and out of these things, but this is a real group of people that you can track through multiple systems multiple times in a year. Secondly, uh, you know, to your point, there's a, there's a real argument that says, well, should this be your target group or should it be the next 10% on the curve? Because actually, you know, there's a that might be the point of maximum intervention. But equally, you know, you've got that perennial issue really in this of, well, you can't really ignore the morbidity in the system in the hope of just addressing the maximum point of prevention. So one of my one of my best friends actually is Louise Casey. So I have had lots and lots of conversations with Louise over the years in the work that she did around around troubled families. And and you know, I've absolutely from her got the bug of of how it is in a really effective, structured way, you you can make a difference. And I've been inspired very often by the stories that that, that she's told. One of the things that I I remember her saying was that one of the things that she would do with families who who were just starting to show signs of being in power, feeling they could make a difference, was ask them to go and help another family. Because one of the characteristics of the people she was working with, nobody had ever, people had offered them things, been giving them things, often not in a very coordinated way. It had never been thought that they had anything to offer. And so it could often be quite transformational to a family that had started to turn things around. And I know that actually in your own work, in your own trust, that that there are, you know, been many case, cases of, of of patients who have turned into people who've worked for you and with you. But it's hard, though, isn't it? I mean, in the end, even though I think that the work the Troubled Families Unit did, for example, w w was great. In the end, the the difference that kind of intensive intervention makes is not as great as one might imagine. And also, it seems to last 
not much longer than the intense intervention. So we have this hope that we can make an intense intervention. People will turn their lives around and we can walk away. But that's not realistic, is it? We need to, I think, be a lot more serious than we've we've been, uh, in a sense, in being systematic about this. So, you know, I, I think one of the issues that that we often see in trying to tackle these types of issues is, um, you know, it's really easy to set up a pilot. It's really easy to get the focus down in on a particular group and one thread of a particular group's lives. And then, you know, we declare success, failure or whatever. Um, but we never really tried to make this a systematic approach. But uh, imagine if we could get to a point where in working with this group and indeed the people who will be in that group in a year's time and then five years' time and then 10 years' time because you can begin to see the development of those sort of successor cohorts in the data. Well, what if we were able to build a sort of really agile analytics platform that drew much more real-time data so that we could really, really, really start to look at not just being able to do some basic stuff for this cohort, because I think when when you start to look into how agencies fall over each other, you've already alluded to that. It's not a great use of public money. And I think we're going to only ever have a limited effect unless we think about doing some radical redesign on the back end of this. And I suppose I'd say is I've never really seen that radical redesign take place. Maybe we haven't had the structures to support it. But, you know, in my reading of the white paper and the development of integrated care organizations and the partnership board approach and so on, isn't this exactly what we're meant to be doing? Well, yes. And let me let me turn to that, Joe, because I think of course, that's the point. And what excites me about ICS is this. I, when I worked at the RSA, I, I wrote a couple of blogs about the fact that when it came to public service collaboration on the one hand, joining up services on the one hand, and kind of place-based work on the other, that we in the public sector government, we, we invest in bricks, but not in mortar. You know, we invest in pistons, but not in oil. And I said, the problem is, how do we invest in the spaces between organizations, not just in organizations? Now, I, you know, I wrote that years ago, and I come into this job, and I look at ICSs, and I think, if only they can resist the temptation to become health authorities, if only NHSE can resist the temptation of turning them into health authorities, and, you know, let's, be, let's not be naive. You know, if things go wrong within a system, systems will need to intervene and systems will need to know what's going on amongst their providers. I mean, but but if you can see that as a, a secondary role, and if ICSs and places instead can see their primary role as enablement, as empowerment, as convening, as problem solving, as precisely being the, a thing which which is there between organizations and systems and connects them up. Well, we've never really created public sector bodies like that before, and that and that's why it's it's so exciting. Do you do you do you share that that sense of excitement, Joe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, you know, I'm a, I could argue in my, the first phase of my career, I was a creature of health authorities, you know, in in some shape or form, and there was a lot of good stuff that those that that, that intermediate layer of uh, the NHS did, but but you're right, we need relationship in this. We need ambitious threads that, as you say, sit in the intervening spaces. They don't really sit at the tops of organizations. We need to sort of be able to do something with 
with talent that's different. If integrated care systems, I think, can take the challenges you suggest, we stand some hope to do something that is a bit more seismic in terms of the change we need to make. Uh, you know, we've talked about that complex cohort, but there's plenty of cohorts you can talk about that's it's just as difficult. So, so when you're in that wicked problem scenario, you really need to think about somewhat more seismic approaches. For me, I'm, I was keen to talk to you about the population health management piece and the connection to integrated care systems, because I think that I think one can be a big driver for the other. So, so I think systems that would take these sorts of issues, the you know data to analysis, data into action, and then people to data triangle thing, really seriously. Um, it takes nothing away from places. You know, places are powerful engine houses about this. But, but you know, my experience in the past has been I've seen, for example, CCGs, neighbours try to do diametrically opposite things. So in the end, when you try and add up the net benefit of all of the interventions, they get averaged off to not show very much improvement. Uh, you know, and I, I'm sort of hopeful we'll see IC. B's, I see S's, sit down and say, well, look, and I'm, I'll, I'll go to complex lives just as a, an example. It needn't be the thing. But but what if all nine places in our ICS decided they were going to take action on complex lives, that we were going to have a common data methodology, that we were going to build more connected data? So we really, really were going to plug in NHS, social care, police, and all the other data into the system. We were going to use civic cooperative methods to keep that data, you know, belonging to people, not to um, big organizations. And we were to use that data platform to generate new insights that we could then use to create local political drive to look for something better, look for a connected a set of solutions. That is surely a, a task that's worth trying to bring to life rather than sort of continue to work out how to slice the salami because I, I don't think that's going to get there. So I, I, I absolutely agree, uh, Joe, which, which brings me to the kind of the last thing I just want to cover then before we finish, which is for me, for integration to work, a system working as well, it requires leaders who are willing to put the needs of the population ahead of organizational interests, not all the time, again, that would be naive, but from time to time to do that, to say what matters here is population health, and we need to work in the most effective way, even if that might involve my organization taking on more risks or putting more money into a shared funding pool or whatever it might be. Now, that involves generosity, actually. And generally speaking in life, we tend to be generous to friends and family and not to strangers. And yet, it feels to me as often we try to build collaborative bricks using relational straw, that we don't invest the time in developing the relationships you need to develop if people are truly going to work together in that kind of transformative way. Now, I look at, Joe, the the, the way you work in, in your organization, the incredible emphasis you put on culture in your organization. Uh, my, my sense is that we don't yet put enough emphasis on the kind of culture, organizational development, relationship building that we need to do if we're going to get transformative relationship between organizations. What, what's your view of that? 
Yeah, I'd agree 100% really. It's an issue. I suppose I've focused on in the 10 years I've been here. So the way we do things, that that's not just the sort of system and process, but it's the approach to transparency and candor and partnership and relationship and all of those sorts of things, you know, which do over time uh, meld into sort of becoming a, a trusted partner in the system. But you're quite right. If if we don't all do that, then it doesn't matter how hard you work at it as an individual entity uh, in that sense. And that can sometimes, Matthew, be dispiriting, I have to say, just to go back to the what, what are the things that you you sort of continually face that keeps coming round and round and you know well we've we've termed it here as the negative yes in the system partnership piece people say yes because it's convenient and right at the time really they mean no and they're not going to detect the risks and so on that 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 you talk about so some of that i think is about moving with the willing so not everybody has to be willing to do the same things. But if, if some you know groups and partnerships decide they're going to try and do some things, then I think sometimes that's enough because I've got a belief that, you know, you bring people along over time. It's why we need to focus, I think, and why, again, um, I've been keen, certainly in the work that we're doing, to to say, look, if we think about population health management, let's not try and boil the ocean. Let's not try and solve everything. Let's take something that's hard and difficult, but make a really good job of it. Because I, I think that's the sort of injection of adrenaline that the system needs. You know, because everybody in the in public services, you know, we've had a difficult two years, haven't we? And we had a, we've had a difficult 10 years before that in terms of, you know, austerity and so on. Lastly, however, for ICSs, I think there's something that if we could begin to think about shared risk registers or something like that, I'm sure it could be something a bit more sophisticated than that, but but a little bit like in organizations that tend to be very good at managing risks. They understand their risks, they work very hard on the mitigations, and they've got, generally speaking, a good view of what their risk appetite is. So, you know, if a risk is high and your appetite's high, you know, go home and sleep. Um, if it's the other way around, um, you know, stay awake and pay attention. Um, and organ some organizations have done that well uh, right across the, the sort of public sector spectrum. Uh, but I wonder if for ICSs, that's one of the things, whatever we choose to call it, but should we have a common set of risks, really understand their mitigations, and at ICB level, have a view of what our appetite is? Because I, I think if we're going to negotiate some of the difficult stuff we've got ahead, what we can't be doing as we go through our governance processes is getting halfway up the hill and deciding it's too hard. I mean, there's a long history of that uh, in the NHS and public services. So so it's a great question. I don't have a ready answer. Some of it sits in culture for sure and cultural alignment. Uh, but the harder we work at that, the greater we get the trust. The more we get the trust, we're going, the more able we will be to, I think, get into those crunchy questions about, well, okay, if we all decide to go in this direction, we're, we're not going to be able to give loads of certainty just by the very nature of the problem. But we, we should be able to map out the risks, how to manage and mitigate those risks in the best interests of the people we serve. Um, and lastly, the bit we forget about, what's our appetite to do the change? I think that's a critical question still for, for ICPs. So, Joe, I couldn't agree with you more. And and uh, by coincidence, 
I'm just now writing something about precisely this. The, the truth is, for the NHS now, in the middle of summer, feeling like it's the middle of winter with a really tough winter on the way, and year, tough years after that, because the capacity gap we've got on staff and estates and things is going to take years to deal with. You know, we are, as someone put it, you know, we are a, a six-foot man on a freezing night with a five-foot blanket. The question is, you know, which parts of our bodies are we going to expose? And and in that context, I think three things. I think, first of all, systems must take responsibility for using data to have an open and honest and authentic conversation about harms and risks, where they face up to the fact that there are harms and risks and they are unavoidable in the situation that we're in. And we just need to fess up to that, own it, and then think about how we manage things to minimize patient harm. And then secondly, that I agree with you that whilst we at the CONFED absolutely believe that systems are there to empower and enable not to dominate and control, actually, when it comes to risk, that is something that needs to be addressed at a system level. And systems need to be able to say to providers, for example, look, you may have to do things that are difficult for you, you may have to internalize risks, because actually, for the system as a whole, this is what we need to do to minimize patient harm. And then thirdly and finally, that the role of the center is surely that when systems have done that hard work, and if they, in doing that hard work, have to do things that are different, unusual, unconventional, well, the center needs to back them. The center needs to have their backs in doing whatever it is that is necessary to manage risk most effectively at system level. So, Joe, I think this is a great example which brings together the soft and the hard. The hard is the data, the analytics, being able to understand risk, and the soft is the relationships, the generosity, the empathy, the shared vision that enables us not just to think about our own organization's interests or our interests, but the interests of the population as a whole. So, so Joe, it's a brilliant way to end the conversation. I've absolutely loved talking to you. Uh, thanks so much for spending this time with us. Matthew, it's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast.